book of Galatians, so make your way there. We're going to be, like we do on Wednesday nights here, traveling through from Genesis to Revelation as we are getting kind of an aerial view from the sky, looking at the big picture of God's Word going through each book and just kind of giving the, the summary, the key themes, the key content going on in those books. And so we've had a great time. Started in Genesis uh, a little over a year ago and making our way through all this here and getting uh, getting close. This is great. So Galatians, hope you're all there. Now Galatians, the letter to the Galatians was very possibly the first letter that Paul wrote. And it's interesting because, you know, even the, kind of the style of this book compared to other books he wrote is a little bit different, whether that was Paul just kind of learning his own kind of, you know, nuances of of his penmanship and, and how to write, we're not sure exactly. Um, but the flavor of this book takes on a little bit different view and look than the rest of his writings do. But the reason that Paul really gets fired up in this letter ultimately is because Paul's in a battle. Paul's in a battle for Christian liberty. Because Christian liberty is at stake here as, as Paul is writing. There's a lot of stuff coming into the church there. And, and, and we'll see that Paul's writing to a, a series of churches, not one church in particular. But there was a battle going on where there was some teaching going on that was causing Christians to kind of move away from grace. And man, if we don't stand in grace, then we really have nothing to stand on at all, right? So Paul's really writing this. And, and you see in this letter here, he's getting a little bit fired up here, a little bit different kind of hard and, and persona that we see in some of his other writings. But this is the reason why we'll see that as we go through here. But when did Paul write this letter? As I said, it's very possible his first letter that has been written. Now, there's a lot of discrepancy, a lot of different views as to when Paul really did write this letter. Um, many believe it was written around 48 to 49 AD, just prior to the Jerusalem Council. Remember in Acts 15, we see the kind of the, the heads of the church and the leaders there in Jerusalem meeting together. And they're discussing, you know, what are we going to do with the Gentile converts? What what kind of uh, of restrictions or guidelines are we going to give them? And so that was what that was all being worked out about, that they didn't need to follow the law. Well, they come under grace. But Paul doesn't mention that Jerusalem Council specifically in the letter. So many believe he wrote this just prior to it. But there's a lot of people that believe he wrote this letter um, anywhere from 47 AD to 55 AD. And so there's different views as to when he wrote it because that whole area of Galatia, Paul visited on a couple different um, mission trips that he was on. And so some believe that he wrote it and, and he wrote kind of to that um, first section that we'll talk about here, that area of Galatia that we'll look at on a map here in a second. But again, let me just say that what Paul was really writing about was to deal with this battle with Christian liberty. And so he's warning his readers as these Judaizers are coming in. These Judaizers were these false teachers that were seeking to bring people under the law, especially these Gentile converts, to bring them under the law, to say, hey, that's great that you've accepted Jesus, but you still need to follow the law. You still need to bring yourself under the law. And it was creating unnecessary burdens on people. So Paul's writing to say, listen, there's nothing needed other than faith in Jesus. That's what the content of Galatians really is centering around. The key verse that we'll find here in this book is Galatians 5.1, where Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, 
in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So Paul's saying, stand fast, hold your ground. Don't get moved away from this area of grace and freedom that we have in Christ. Hold your ground. And, and the moment that you move away from this freedom in Christ and the grace that we have, then all you're doing is you're going to be entangling yourself with unnecessary things that will become a burden in your life. See, guys, there's nothing more satisfying or peaceful for an individual than to realize that the work has all been done for them in and through Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for that tonight? Yeah. Even you back row people, you're thankful for that, right? Okay, awesome. Good to know it. Man, it's all, all the work's been done. Jesus has paid it all in full. And it's all been done. So stand your ground in faith in Jesus because it's all complete in him. Given to you freely by his grace. Galatia or Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of the early church. It's the manifesto of Christian liberty. Now, before we kind of begin to break this down a little bit, um, Let's take a little bit of a look at the connection that Paul had to the people of Galatia. Now, Galatia was composed of essentially two regions, as I alluded to earlier. There was an ethnic group of Galatians in the north, and there was a political group of Galatians in the south region of Galatia. Now, Galatia had two meanings when this epistle was written. First, it referred to the area in Asia Minor, where the Gauls had settled after migrating from Western Europe through Italy and Greece. And so here's a little bit of a map here to show you if you can see that at all, the green area there, the dark green is Galatia area, modern day Turkey for us. Now the territory was limited to the north central and east central areas of Asia Minor and its principal cities were Ancrea, Pestinus and Tavian. But in 25 BC, this kingdom was converted to a Roman province and territory was added now to the south, including the cities of, and I'll bring up this map, the cities of Iconium, Lystra, Derby and Antioch. And so those are kind of in the south region there of, of Galatia. So Paul founded the churches in the south on his first missionary trip. Then he founded the churches in the northern region on his second and third missionary trips there. Now, the people that were inhabiting the land, the, the Gauls, okay, of Galatia, they were known to be a, a restless people that were out just to kind of satisfy and follow their whims. Here's the description that Julius Caesar gave of the Gauls. He says, and I quote, The infirmity of the Gauls is that they are fickle in their resolves, fond of change and not to be trusted. All right? So that's going to prove a a characteristic that Paul is going to contend with in this epistle. So here's what we look at as we go through this. And and oftentimes in Paul's writing, especially in these in these epistles that we'll be going through in the next few weeks, that Paul oftentimes dealt with this doctrinal view first and then looked at the, the application of that. So here in Galatians, we break it down. First two chapters is that personal, where Paul is defending his apostleship. And then chapters 3 and 4 deals with the doctrinal, where Paul is defending justification by faith. And then that third section here is the practical, Paul defending Christian liberty in chapters 5 and six. I love how Paul starts off his letter, and he does this with a lot of his letters. It's typical fashion for Paul. He starts out there in verse three, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was always one to emphasize grace. There's always grace and peace, and always in that order, because you can't know the peace of God until you understand the grace of God. If you don't understand the grace of God, that the work's already been done, and all you need to do is put your faith in him. Then you're not going to have peace because you're always going to wonder, am I doing enough? And, and when you talk to Christians that haven't understood the gospel, 
and understood grace. He talked to him. There's no assurance. You're never sure. Well, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. I hope I'm going to get there. Just hope I'm doing enough. There's no peace in that. But when you come to know grace, that God's given it to you freely, it's all been done and complete, man. There's peace that we enjoy. And then Paul lays out in verse 4 the gospel so clearly. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's what Jesus came to do for us, isn't it? To deliver us from sin, deliver us from this evil age. He came to, to pull us out and to give us new life, which is this life of liberty and freedom in him that Paul's going to be dealing with and talking about here in this letter. And so it's through this freedom and liberty that we have in Jesus that Paul kind of goes on the offense, and he gets right to it here in verse 6. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, I'm, I marvel. He's, he's like he's flabbergasted at this idea that people would move away from grace. From this good news, this gospel of grace, and a move towards something else here, which he says is not another gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one truth. There's only one good news. It's found in Jesus. And the minute that you move away from Jesus, then you're onto something different altogether that cannot save. Because only Jesus can save you. And ultimately what it does, as Paul is saying here, is that it brings you just into bondage. They, they, these people, these Judaizers, as he's referencing here, when he says... There are some who trouble you. It's these Judaizers, these false teachers that were seeking to bring people back under the law. They trouble you. They distort. They pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, the idea of, of turning away, I marvel that you're turning away so soon. The idea of turning away is like that, that idea of defecting. It's to leave one's loyalty. In classical Greek, that, that was used as a turncoat. And notice something here. They weren't turning away from a system a tradition or formula, they were turning away from a person, from a, a, an intimate relationship with the only one that can save them, that's Jesus Christ. They weren't moving away from a system or, or rules or tradition. It was all about a person, Jesus Christ. That you are turning away so soon from him who calls you into the grace of Christ. See, Jesus was the one that called them into grace, but they were leaving it for a a different gospel. And, and like I said, <laughs> it's not a different gospel. It's no gospel at all because there's only one truth. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news. It's found in Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's what he has done for us. And if you're replacing Jesus with something else, or even if you're replacing it with Jesus and, then you've got a different gospel. You don't have a gospel that can save you because it's only through Jesus. And there are a lot of people that are saying, well, Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I, oh, I'm putting my faith in Jesus, but I'm, you know, just cover my bases. I've also got a little statue of Buddha on my mantle and I'm putting my trust in Muhammad. I'm just going to see, make sure that one of them is going to take care of it. If it's Jesus and, then you're on to something entirely different that's not the gospel. And it's not going to save you. It's only found in Jesus because that's what the gospel is all about. So these Judaizers, wanted to make Jewish converts to these Gentiles and bring them under the law of Moses, distorting the gospel, moving them away from Jesus. And there were some that are saying, oh, hey, you can have Jesus. 
It's okay. You take your Jesus, but you've also got to uphold the law. You've also got to follow these things, you know, religiously. See, it was Jesus and something else. Distorting, moving them away from the gospel. Now, what's interesting is that Paul, he was a real expert when it came to the law. So as he's talking about these things, he knows firsthand what the law does, what the law is all about. He knows what the law can do and what the law can't do. People weren't able to say that he just didn't understand the nuances of the law. Paul, if you just understood the law, you'd probably side with us. No, Paul's saying, listen, guys, I mean, if there's anybody that knows the law, it's me. Notice what Paul says here, verse 11 of chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer the flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. See, Paul understood what the law was all about. It says there in verse 14, he advanced in it beyond many of his contemporaries. But he also knew as much as he advanced in the understanding and the knowledge and the obedience of the law, Remember, he could say elsewhere in Philippians, man, I, I consider myself blameless. He upheld the law. But he received something far greater than just the teachings or traditions of men. He received the, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he realized the futility of the law. He realized that the law could do nothing to help him be a better person. Or to have that peace of God. It was only found in Jesus Christ. And nobody could say, Paul, come on. I mean, you're just making this up. Or, or maybe you've been brainwashed by other people. You've been talking to those apostles again because they're just telling you a bunch of fluff. No, Paul says, I didn't even consult with the apostles, man. I, I received this directly by revelation of God. This is what the Lord put on my heart. He knew both sides, the law and grace in Jesus. And he saw that the way of grace is truly the most blessed way and the only way to truly enjoy this freedom in Christ and to live this life that Christ has for us. He says on in chapter 2, flip over to chapter 2, verse 16. He says, knowing, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Look at verse 19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. So Paul lays it out for us so clearly there in those 
in those verses. That through the law, no flesh shall be justified. The law is not going to make you right with God. The law is not going to bring you to God where you can say, look at how good and righteous I am. Look at I'm upholding the law. The law won't do that. The law can't do that. So Paul began to see clearly the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That work of justification is given to us in and through Jesus Christ. It's passed to us by his grace. It's not something passed on to us through observance of the law. That was that was so refreshing for Paul here. As he's seeking to bring these people in Galatia that were starting to hear something distorted to tell them, man, guys, it's simply wrapped up in Jesus. And Paul begins to explain how he's living this, this new life in Christ and enjoying this new life in Christ. I, through the law, die to the law that I might live to God. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ that lives in me. You see, Paul's realizing now that I've got a power at work in my life that's beyond me. It's Christ that's living in me now. The law could only put on an outward reform of me trying to look the part of being a follower of God, living this, this righteous life. It can only do that on an outward level, but inwardly, I mean, people could be as corrupt as they wanted to. They could hide it inwardly. But now Paul says, man, I got something that's working from the inside out. That's bringing not just reformation outwardly, but bringing transformation inwardly. That's through Jesus Christ living in me. That's exciting stuff, isn't it? To know what Jesus has done for us. For a guy like Paul, think about it, who's lived his whole life observing the law, following the law, thinking he's being righteous before God through the law. And now he realizes, oh man, I've been missing it all along. There's a greater work that goes on. And it's given to me freely. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to live a certain life for it. I just need to put my faith in Jesus. And he comes and dwells in me and gives me the power and the ability to live this life for him. So, so Paul's ready to, to do battle with anything or anyone that might get in the way of this gospel reality. So we move now in our outline to look at this doctrinal section in chapters 3 and 4 where Paul is defending this justification by faith now now in defending this work of justification by faith paul he argues from five different viewpoints in these next couple chapters here that we'll look at we'll look at first of all the personal argument and we'll look at the scriptural argument we'll see the practical argument the sentimental argument the allegorical argument here so the personal argument chapter three look at verse one with me chapter three he says oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn uh, from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So Paul recounts now. And he was there as the gospel was being poured out, as lives were being changed, transformed. He was seeing the Holy Spirit being poured out. And he's recounting that time now, that conversion experience where these people in Galatia were receiving the truth. And they were seeing the Holy Spirit come and and fill them and, and do a work in them that they can't do in and through the law. It was done by hearing the gospel. It was a response to their faith. The people of Galatia did not experience 
a more spiritual life by observing the law. The law didn't make them better people. Yet what was so tragic, and is often the case with ourselves, if we're not careful to guard ourselves in these things, is that we try to improve upon by our own effort and ability what God has designed and desired to do in and through his spirit. See, this is a work that God wants to do in your life, a work of transformation, uh, of, of making you new in and through Christ, uh, of changing you, sanctifying you. That's the work that God desires to do in and through his spirit. But then what happens so often is, as is so easy to happen with any work of God is that we see God moving and then we begin to try to perfect it in the flesh. We try to say, oh, hey, that's great, God. You know what? Awesome. Thank you for getting this started. You know what? I'll take it from here. And we'll just sort of get our hands on it and just, we know what to do now. We, get our hand, we, we, we try to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit and what God wants to ultimately continue and finish in the spirit. And it's happening with these people in Galatia. So something we always need to keep before us. Are we trying to perfect in the flesh what God wants to do in and through the spirit, what God ultimately can only do in and through the spirit? So their own experience now, those in Galatia, would tell them that adherence to the law didn't and doesn't make them any better. It's the work God does through his spirit by grace. God's goodness and, and provision in our lives is not carried out by our faithfulness to carry out the law. It's simply by faith. It, that's what, what Paul says. Did it not come by the hearing of faith? Your response by faith. But remember, as Paul brings up their own personal experience of what they've seen and what they've had happen in their own lives to begin with, our experiences must always line up with the word of God. You know, sadly, too often in churches today, we're, we're putting so much emphasis on personal experience, sometimes to the expense of the word of God, where we eliminate, well, I know what the word says, but I can't deny what I've just experienced here. Listen, our experiences must always line up with the word of God. And so Paul, now next in his argument, he brings up the scriptural viewpoint to go, listen, this is what you've experienced yourself firsthand, but the good news is what, you're, what you've experienced lines up with what the word of God has already shown us. So as we move on here now, in verse 6, Paul goes on to say, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So Paul says, listen, guys, let's, let's go back to the word. Let's go right back to the very foundational part of the word. Your very father Abraham. How was he declared righteous? Was it by observing the law? Did he do all these things like getting circumcised or doing all these things to really make himself, you know, come into obedience? Was it all these things that caused Abraham to be righteous? No. In fact, the law wasn't even given. Circumcision wasn't even a thing. Those things weren't even given. Yet when Abraham was around, Abraham was declared righteous. Why? Because he believed. He didn't just believe in God. He believed God. He took God at his word. When God was promising that, Abraham, I'm going to make you a, a mighty nation. I'm going to give you great posterity. And through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. 
Abraham could have thought, and remember, Abraham's getting up in years. Wife ain't far behind him, right? She's getting old. She's barren. And Abraham could have easily thought, God, thank you for that wonderful word of encouragement, but there's no way I can believe that. I mean, just look at my wife. Come on, God. Like, you're not giving much to work with here. It could have been easy to dismiss that and not to believe. But Abraham believed. And it was through his belief and faith in what God was doing that he was now accounted as righteous. Now, that Greek word for accounted, it's a great word. It's translated as counted and imputed in other places. It's an accounting term speaking of something getting credited to you. Something getting credited to you. That's a good word, isn't it? I like that word. That's a, that's a, my day just got a whole lot better kind of a word, credited. I like things being credited to any account that I'm a part of, right? That's a good thing, isn't it? We like that. That's the idea here with Abraham. Abraham, righteousness now is being credited to your account. It's even better when you get a credit that you didn't really deserve, right? When a company owner says, you know what? We just want to put this credit in your account because, you know, our service hasn't been great or this has happened, whatever. We're going to just put this credit in your account. That's a, man, that, that feels good. And that's what happened with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to put this credit into your account and it's a credit of righteousness. It's going to make you have a right standing before God now because of your faith given freely by that grace of God. So Paul, who's been taking abuse for preaching a message of grace and justification by faith, he tells his critics here, your own scriptures now are are promoting this very thing that I'm teaching. This isn't a new thing. This isn't a weird thing. This is right in line with your very scriptures, Judaizers, that you're trying to say you're living by. And yet it's right there for you to see that this is the way that God has always dealt with his people. I gave some backing to the message that Paul was preaching. Paul further quotes the word to show the futility of trying to use the law to be righteous. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, because it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So Paul there, he's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, again, right back from their law. And he goes on to say in verse 7, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just, just shall live by faith. So if you're going to use the word or, or the law as the means to your righteousness, then, then you better be an overachiever. You better be like a straight A student. This doesn't bode well for me. And it probably doesn't bode well for a, a lot of you. Because if you're going to be trying to make your life right with God by what you do, then you need absolute perfection. You need to live according to every ounce of the law. As James says, if you break one part of the law, it's as though you broke it at all. We're good at keeping a lot of the law. But there's areas that we all know we falter in. And it leaves us guilty before God. So Paul quotes a little verse from Habakkuk 2 for. It's a powerful verse. It's a verse that, that Paul loves to use. And he's used it three times in the New Testament. If 
if Paul was the writer of Hebrews, because it's found there in Hebrews. But it's a, a liberating verse for sure. It's the passage that set Martin Luther free. So this word from Habakkuk 2 for this verse is quoted in Galatians 3.11, Romans 1.17, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And in each place, it's a different kind of attribute that's emphasized. In Romans, Paul emphasized the just. In Hebrews, the writer emphasizes faith. Here in Galatians, Paul emphasizes that part, they shall live. The just shall live. Live the life. Live this freedom and liberty that, that Christ has set us free in and with. That's what Paul is emphasizing here, what he wants his readers to really grasp here. And again, like I said, it's what caused Martin Luther to understand this true work of God. Martin Luther said, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with them. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Now, Paul answers for us a question that I'm sure many people were probably thinking while reading through this. Well, what then is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law then to begin with? Well, Paul gives us a couple of reasons why the law was given. First of all, it's given to restrain us from sin. And secondly, it's given to reveal our sin. It restrains us from sin and it reveals our sin. Look at verse 19. Paul says there, what purpose then does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So the purpose of the law was to restrain us from just all out depravity because transgression was already at work in the world. And people were on a, on a fast track to nowhere because of transgressions and sin, right? And so God gave the law really to just give some primers to restrain sin. So if I'm cruising down a road, and you've heard me use this analogy a lot because it's an area of sin that you need to pray for me with, but I'm cruising down the road and I'm just flying along. I don't see any speed limit signs. I'm like, this is great, man. It's like the Autobahn. I can just go as fast as I want. It's lovely. As soon as a speed limit sign pops up, I realize, oh man, I'm, I'm going over the limit. And I need to, I need to get, you know, within at least 20 kilometers of that now to get sort of, you know, on pace, right? 40? 40 kilometers. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. My brother. All right. So within 40 kilometers of that, you gotta get somewhere in that vicinity, right? Or else you realize, oh man, so it restrains our sin. But then, again, that law, just like that same analogy, it also reveals our sin. If I don't see any speed limit signs, I don't know that I'm doing anything wrong. But suddenly that speed limit sign comes up, I realize I'm in error. I'm breaking the law. I wouldn't know it otherwise. That's what the law came to do. It came to re restrain us from sin, but it also came to reveal our sin. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 24, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under tutor. So the law was really meant to just kind of hold us, teach us, kind of grow us and mature us. But when we get to the point, you know, the, the purpose ultimately is to lead us to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we no longer need the tutor, right? It's all wrapped up now in Jesus. Just as a student has a tutor, but as that student begins to mature and grow, they don't need that tutor any longer. It's time to move on. And when the perfect comes, which is Jesus Christ, then we don't 
any longer need the law to be that tutor or guide in our lives. We have Christ, which is far greater, far better. We find freedom and salvation in Jesus by grace through faith. That's, that's the mature person. That's the person that, that no longer needs the law. So we've seen the personal argument, the scriptural argument. Paul next leads us to the, the practical argument. Look at verse 26. Actually, let's go to verse 29. It says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, the law can't, can't bring us in a right standing with God. We, we don't have favor by being children of Abraham, by, by being descendants of Abraham. That doesn't bring us in any special favor with God just because we're born. And, and that's the card that the Jews have played a lot of times, right? We're, even with Jesus, we're children of Abraham. Right? We have, we have Moses here to, to follow. They thought that they had a special privilege because of their birthright. But, but what does Paul say here? Man, it's when you're in Christ that you're truly of Abraham's seed. And you receive the, the promises given to all those that are now in Christ. We have favor by being in Christ. And that, that's been God's plan all along. Sure, it's been marred by sin, but God did something to fix it at just the right time. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Are you beginning to see a little bit about what this liberty in Christ does for us. You see, the law, what did the law do? The law brought people under fear and worry. It just kind of brought condemnation because they all began to see how much they were breaking it and guilty of it. People were afraid to approach God. But now, through Christ and the favor we have in him, this grace that's been extended to us now, we now are brought into a special relationship by which, through the Spirit now, we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's that Aramaic term for Papa or Daddy. Nobody in their right mind would ever have this view of calling God in a, in a special term of love like a, like a child to his earthly father would. But yet, that's our Heavenly Father. That's the relationship He brings us into now. He's a Father by which we may enjoy relationship with rather than try to Helplessly fulfill requirements for. We enjoy relationship with this Abba Father. How sweet that is. Then Paul moves on to the sentimental argument. Paul didn't want to see people slipping back into an inferior life or or trusting in things that cannot save. He says there in chapter 4 verse 9. But now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So Paul's just like pleading with these Galatians. He's had a relationship with them, and now he's like, man, how is it that you're, you're moving back to the weak and the beggarly, the inferior things that, that don't do anything to help you or save you? You know, we do the same thing when we put aside the reading of God's word for more TV time or we hit the lake instead of going to church. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with those things that I've mentioned here. I like those things. But if I think that these things are going to be better 
or more satisfying than time with Jesus, then I'm sadly mistaken. If I think these things are going to help me be a better person or live a, 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 a more satisfying life, I'm sadly mistaken. It's only in Jesus that my life is going to be enriched and strengthened and renewed. Why would I turn aside to weak or beggarly inferior things? Just as these Galatians were doing that Paul is pleading with. And then we see the allegorical argument. Paul's last argument was based on these two covenants represented by Hagar and Sarah. The first covenant was given at Mount Sinai and and was connected to the Jerusalem, which now is. When Paul was writing this, there were many in Jerusalem who still continued to, to trust in the law and live by religious means in order to please God. That's what Hagar represented. But Jesus came to establish a new covenant, one in which he would do the work to bring about the forgiveness that we all needed. It's received by faith. That's what Sarah and the new Jerusalem represents for us here. All those that want to truly be children of God must be tied to this new Jerusalem, which means you're coming to God by faith alone. Look at verse 24. Or sorry, verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, allegorical. These are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. That's Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia in correspondence to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So this is the, the allegory that Paul is, is giving here. So chapters 1 and 2, personal. Chapters 3 and 4, very doctrinal, looking at what this justification by faith is really all about. Paul really took us deep to show us that we're justified by faith. And now, in chapters 5 to 6, we look at the practical. He moves from the argument for grace now to look at the application of grace as Paul defends this Christian liberty. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Again, that theme verse of the whole book here. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So now you really begin to see the, the content, the whole big picture as to why Paul is writing this. Why he needs to tell people to stand fast in this liberty and not to be entangled by a yoke of bondage because that yoke of bondage was them moving away from the gospel of grace to the law. And it was choking them out, not providing any life for them. Now, for some people, liberty means license to do what you want. All right, I'm free. I can do whatever I please. But that's why so many were getting so attached to the law and legalism. It was a safeguard to them. It was a gauge to see how they're doing, how they're measuring up. It was a way to evaluate their own righteousness and holiness. But Paul wants to show us another and and better way to walk in holiness. It's through the Spirit. Christ has set us free from sin. So, he says, keep standing in this liberty. Now, the enhanced Strong's lexicon says, liberty is to do or to omit things having no relationship to salvation. To do or to omit things having no relationship to salvation. And there were lots of people in Paul's day that were veering away from liberty. They were attaching themselves to things that had no relationship to salvation as a means to be right with God. So they were thinking, this is what's saving me, 
But those things that they were attaching to had nothing to do with salvation. So Paul says to stand fast. The idea here is to hold your ground. Be firm in your standing and persist in it. Don't be easily swayed and moving from position to position. You've got to maintain your ground, he says. And the only ground that we can stand on for salvation is found in Jesus. Paul would say it elsewhere, 1 Thessalonians 3.8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You got to hold your ground. You got to hold fast to that which is truly the gospel, the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. By which you're saved, if you hold fast. For now we live, if you stand fast. There's only one way to live, to find salvation. It's by faith in Jesus. Standing in Jesus, being in Jesus. Our salvation is in Christ. Our freedom from works. It's all because of him. So Paul says, stay persistent in that. Hold your ground. Stand fast in that. To move away from our dependency on Christ, from from relying on Christ for the very means of our salvation is to bring us under that yoke of bondage. Right? Now that's a term we don't often use today. But that yoke in, in Paul's day was a familiar Picture used in, in, in putting on oxen to keep them in, in submission, to, to direct them where to go. But to put a yoke on a person would just be restrictive, binding. It wouldn't be comfortable. But that's what the Judaizers were doing with the law. They thought the law was a great guide to keep you on track, keep you on course. See if you're living up to the righteousness required of you. But all it did was create a heavy and uncomfortable burden to bear. Now, as some people began to think of this grace and freedom, they may have thought that they were now free to do what they wanted. That was basically a license for licentiousness, they thought. So Paul brings some clarity and correctness to this gospel of grace. And basically, his message is that God's grace will do in you what the law could never do. God's grace will do in you. They thought, I need the law? To keep me on track, but Paul says, no, actually, the work of God by his spirit, his grace being poured in life is going to cause you to do that which you can never do in and through the law. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 5 says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another beware lest you be consumed by one another i say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh i love that verse walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh thankfully when we put our trust in jesus The Holy Spirit now takes up residence in us, in our very lives. And actually the Holy Spirit that we're empowered now to live out this life in a way that glorifies Christ. He ignites our new nature so that our old nature becomes less active. It has less sway in our lives. There's a new nature at work now that is fired up by the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in a manner that glorifies Christ. It doesn't fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Paul then lays out the difference between the old nature and the new nature, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 9, sorry, verse 19 to 21 goes through all the works of the flesh. We won't, these are familiar to you. I mean, hopefully not in practice, but you know we've gone over these verses so often. And then the fruit of the Spirit there in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Now, think about the process here. Because we're comparing works versus what we have in Christ. What What is the difference? Works versus what? What? Works and faith, yes, but in this passage right here, verse 22, is what? The, what of the Spirit? Fruit. So we're comparing works versus fruit. And I, and I love the analogy. I love the, the terms that Paul is using here. Works are something that's generated by effort. When you see work, I mean, that's a word that we oftentimes don't like. Work. Work means, man, I gotta, it requires something of me. I gotta do something. It's gonna, it's gonna perhaps bring a sweat. It's gonna make me tired. Work, right? That's not something that we all get excited about so much. It's a product of human energy. Whereas fruit is something that comes about by a natural process. We don't have to work to have fruit. Fruit just has to Sit on the vine. Be connected to the source. And what happens? It grows. It becomes fruit. Fruit is not sitting on the branch. I've never walked by an orchard and I just heard, you know, moaning or, or groaning or just say, Oh, I'm just about there. Come on, just a little bit more. Fruit is never straining. Fruit's just hanging out. Just abiding. And it's receiving everything it needs to Become fruit in a natural process. We can create works, but we can't create fruit. Well, we can plant the seed in the ground, we can water, but that life comes from the seed that is beyond us. That's a work of God. So works and fruit differ as much as a factory and a garden differ. Fruit must grow out of life, and it's the life of the Spirit that produces fruit in the believer's life. John 15, verse 4 to 5. We've been looking at that a lot here. It says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do what? Nothing. Without me you can do nothing. But Jesus simply says, just abide in me. And if you abide in me, I'm going to abide in you and and, and you're going to bear fruit. It's going to come through just a very natural process that you can't manufacture. I love that. And that fruit really becomes evident because notice here, it's not fruits of the Spirit. It's not, it's not, it's not plural, it's singular. The fruit of the Spirit, I believe, is love. And, and Paul says so much there. For, in verse 14, again, we all read it. For all the laws fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One word is fulfilled. What is it? Love. So Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And I believe he just goes on to extend what that love looks like. It's going to be seen in that joy and kindness, gentleness, self-control, patience, all the like. It's, it's love, ultimately, that we're, we're desiring because love fulfills the law. So the Judaizers are coming and saying, you got to get yourself under the law. Paul says, no, you need just to have the spirit in your life. You just need to be abiding in Christ. And as you're doing that, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear love. And love is going to fulfill the law. And you see, for those, and we see it today, there are those that still try to live by a set of rules and regulations. We call it legalism today. And you'll find legalists in the church today. And and what happens oftentimes is the legalists are those that are trying to make themselves feel good by what they do or by what they don't do. Well, I don't do that. Oh, I don't go there. Oh, I don't listen to that. No way. And you see, what's actually happening there is they're saying, in a sense, I'm a little bit more righteous because I don't do those things. Oh, I've been there. I've held that card before where I used to love putting that in front of people. Oh, you watch that show? Oh, no, no, no. I don't watch that show. I can't believe you watch that show. Right? You're happy with that? And, and what I was actually implying a little bit was I'm a little bit more holy than you. Because I was putting my holiness upon what I did or didn't do. I was putting my righteousness upon what I did or didn't do. And not upon Christ alone. But don't get me wrong. There's stuff that, yeah, definitely we, we shouldn't be watching. We shouldn't be looking at. We shouldn't be doing. No doubt about it. But our righteousness isn't dependent on that. Our righteousness is found in Jesus and in him alone. That's what Paul is arguing for. And those that, that try to apply things to say, oh, well, I do this or I don't do that. And I'm very holy because of that. They're putting their 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 righteousness on those things. What happens is you begin to kind of get boastful. You begin to get a little bit prideful. You begin to get self-righteous. That's what Jesus had to contend with. But the Pharisees, they were self-righteous. Their righteousness came by what they did or didn't do. So Paul kind of addresses some of this in the last chapter here, in chapter 6, to deal with how people were, were viewing themselves based on observance of the law and how they were viewing others based on their observance or non-observance of the law. So look at what Paul says here in chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in, in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right? But let each one examine his own work. And then you'll have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. You see what Paul's getting at there? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And ultimately, here's the reality. We're all nothing. We add nothing to our salvation. We are not saved because we've lived a good life. We've been good people. Or because we are so special that God couldn't help but to save us. 
No, we, we are all nothing. That's why grace is so huge, because Christ saved us freely when we didn't deserve it. But the minute that we start thinking, I'm actually adding something to my salvation. I'm actually doing this, which, I mean, come on. God can't help now but to have me go to heaven based on all that I've done. How could he turn me away now? Right? We can easily begin to boast in these things and get prideful in these things. But as Paul says, oh, man, realize that you're nothing. Simply saved by grace. Your, your identity is not in what you do. It's in what Christ has done for you. And when we realize that we're loved by Jesus. Suddenly, we realize, man, he is so good. God is so good. And then in the same way, now, when we begin to realize that, we don't look at others judgmentally. We don't look at other people and go, what? You've done what? How could you do that? Oh, my goodness. You know, we can be so good at just judging others and, and kind of condemning other people. But Paul says, when people are overtaken, what does he tell us to do? Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Come alongside them, not, not to point out their fault, but to point them back to Jesus, to see them restored and forgiven. That's what Paul is calling us to do here. That's what the work of grace does. And the more that we recognize the grace that's been extended to our lives, the more that we will practice that and extend that to other people. I'm so thankful for grace. And I'll tell you, I, I keep growing in grace. I've, I've been brought up in the church. But it, it, it took me a long time to really comprehend and understand grace. It took me a long time to really understand the grace that I needed and the grace that I need to show to other people. But I pray that we keep growing in this grace. Paul ends with some great words of encouragement here in verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. So, good word to end on right there. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on in the grace of Jesus. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. And don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word today. We're so thankful for the freedom and the liberty that we enjoy in you today, that we are not having to load up requirements and regulations and rules upon us and try to measure up to these things that are so hard to do, Lord. But you've set us free by your grace. You've done the work for us. You've forgiven us you've saved us lord and so i pray that we will continue to stand in the reality and the truth and the simplicity of the gospel that is found in you and only in you jesus so help us lord to do that to live it out help us to walk in grace one with another just to show that love because love fulfills love that's not something we manufacture or we do it's something that comes about as we abide in you so help us lord to be abiding in you regularly always lord in all things and that we would see this fruit continue to grow in our lives as a result. So we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.